0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keane. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: Troy Gajewski joining us now, Skybridge Capital Co-CIO. Troy, big news out of Europe. A second wave, potentially a second dip, looking at the restrictions coming out of the continent as well. How are you processing the news this morning, Troy?
2: Yeah, well, clearly it's bad. I mean, from a standpoint of the pandemic, you know, resurging over in Europe, which, as you guys remember, back in March led the US resurgence at the time. And and remember, the big left tail risk for markets for quite some time now has been a significant resurgence above expectations, coupled with the the potential for no more fiscal stimulus, right? And so, you know, up until today, most of the selling we've seen from the two kind of tops we had in late August and, and mid September have been uh, tied to the fact that fiscal stimulus was being priced out of the markets. And Monday was the day where it was effectively priced out completely prior to the election. And now with a combination of the resurgence, and, and you know, Tom mentioned this, equities are only off 6 7% from the recent high where we were about 23 times earnings. You know, there could be more downside as we close the month into early next uh, month um, prior to the election. Um, and then hopefully post-election, we'll get more clarity on the uh, stimulus side. And the pandemic will be somewhat under control at that point.
0: Troy, your charm is to know what people are doing with their money. What are alternative investors doing right now with their money? Are they loading up on growthiness? Are they making rotations? And is anybody making alpha?
2: Well, I I think in general, right, prior to uh, the past two months, risk on was very much Uh, the the mantra of the day for hedge funds, there was quite a bit of uh, risk being taken in tech in particular, uh, but not only there, broader beta. And as we've moved closer to the election, managers have de-risked modestly. They've taken down their gross and their net exposures uh, but directly to your point, um, the biggest concern arguably for the industry right now is how crowded tech names have been because that's been such a significant profit driver. But the problem there is that no one really knows when that reversal will come, will it be driven by higher interest rates, which look unlikely, will it be driven by a, a more significant reopening of the economy. Um, hard to say. So in the meanwhile, you know, growth is still favored over value, although that's starting to change a little bit. And then within uh, regard to alpha, you know, it depends on the strategy, right? In general, the hedge fund industry had the best alpha year uh, really since 2013, if not before the crisis, because you've had so much dispersion in the equity market in particular, which is still a very heavy focus. And you have had big sector winners and big sector losers. And then on top of that, many of the credit managers that got hit back in March have really made a significant portion of their losses back, and the outlook there looks good. So it has been a fairly strong alpha year uh, for the hedge fund industry.
3: Troy, uh, David Einhorn of Greenlight Capital yesterday uh, at the conference that's been going on, the Robinhood conference, said that tech was in a bubble, that it probably already peaked in September, and that he is shorting uh, certain overpriced IPOs as he sees them, as well as other uh, more peripheral tech companies. Are you getting on that train?
2: Well, look, we don't have a lot of uh, growth or tech exposure right now. Um, We do have it through some long, short multi-strategy exposures. The problem is, is we're really not in a bubble per se. It's nothing like the late 90s, where you had these weak, uh, dramatically overvalued companies, many of cases, in, in many cases, had no business case. We're at a period where the, the the strong tech names are very good businesses and continue to grow margins for the most part. But but you do have very elevated valuations, right? And so when the S&P is at 23 times forward earnings and the Nasdaq's five, seven, eight multiple points higher that just sets yourself up for for near term weakness but in terms of having some significant bear market over the short term we think is unlikely so with all due respect to mr einhorn we could be in for you know a prolonged correction but we're in for nothing like we had you know 2002 which was you know 52% down peak the trough for the s&p with the nasdaq down 80 we just think that's very unlikely but you have to be very careful if you're over your skis in terms of uh, tech exposure you know the next 2 3 months could be pretty painful
1: well, I think the point that Einhorn's making also, you bring up the 90s, is that the 1990s shouldn't be the benchmark for whether we're in a bubble or not because it was so crazy 20, 30 years ago. Troy, the question he's asking is whether we are moving just in terms of sentiment from greed towards complacency. You're looking across fixed income and the universe right now. Can you identify that shift from greed to complacency? What would that look like?
2: Well, it, look, in terms of fixed income, I think you're starting to see prices uh, adjust for worse growth, lower probability of stimulus, and that's why you're seeing the curve flatten. Combined with the pandemic, in complacency. I mean, I would say the term would be more exuberance, like we had in August. I mean, August was a month where you had very frothy behavior in markets. You had mini parabolic behavior, not only in broader indices, but also in some of the larger cap tech names in particular, many of them tied to the pandemic. So that was arguably the peak froth. And then you started to build it back up a little bit last week, and now you're seeing some of the froth come out. I, we, do, we just don't see complacency in terms of you know managers being very comfortable with their risk and not factoring in all the various risks that are coming about. You know, Again, people have been de-risking modestly going into the election. So I, I don't think it's necessarily complacency. Um, it's just that the froth that was built up in August has not quite come out. And we might need to have 3 to 5% more downside in the S&P to kind of clear out some of that excess.
1: Getting about half of that right now. Troy, great to catch up, sir. Good to see you. Yeah, Troy, great great, you great to see you guys. Sky, <laughs> Capital. Thank you, Troy. Appreciate it, sir.
0: I do want to mention gold hammered down $21, dollars 1891 the ounce, and oil cannot find a bid. Daniel Morris has seen this before with BNP Paribas, and we know to service to TIA Cref uh, over the years. He's chief market strategist for BNP uh, Paribas. Daniel, I like what you say in your note about the transatlantic partition. The PMI numbers are different. Is Europe in recession?
4: Well, certainly the risk of that happening in the fourth quarter has gone up, is going up. Uh, You know, we had talked about the different shapes of the recovery several months ago, and it does look more and more likely that you may well see a W in Europe, if not necessarily in the U.S.
1: If we do get that W, that W double dip, Dan, what does that mean for your allocation to Europe in the next few quarters?
4: Well, currently, we're, we're overweight uh, U.S. and emerging markets as opposed to Europe in our, in our multi-asset portfolio. So I think that you know simply reflects that risk that you see in Europe. Uh, and in addition to that, the relative lack of tools, options in Europe to compensate for that, be it monetary stimulus, be it fiscal stimulus. They just don't have as many levers as you see in China uh, or in the U.S. for that matter.
1: The fear that I think a lot of people have this morning, Dan, and I'm not saying what the probability of it happening is, you can talk to me about that, is that Europe's present right now is in America's near-term future. Does it have to be that way, Dan?
4: I think there's two things we really need to keep in mind. One, there's just the evolution of the pandemic itself, number of infections, number of deaths, and so on. Uh, And from that point of view, I think it is certainly a possibility that Europe is just ahead of the curve in this sense, and this is what we're going to see in the U.S. Um, But what's really going to matter more for the markets is the reaction to it. And that's really been the story all along. It's the restrictions that are driving the reaction in the market today. We've had the increase in infections, frankly, in France since August. uh, But the markets were relatively blasé about that because he is assumption had been no more lockdowns, been there, done that. They just can't go back uh, to nationwide lockdowns. It's too costly, except what we're seeing now in the face of these just very high numbers in terms of daily infections, that governments are kind of stepwise moving in that direction. Now, of course, they still want to avoid that, uh, but the pressure is building and the markets are pricing. And now that that's the ultimate endpoint that we reach, maybe not full nationwide lockdowns but something a lot closer to that than they would have thought a month ago.
3: Daniel, is this a buying opportunity then if there's more of a pullback in the the face of uh, restrictions and lockdowns, given the fact that people are still expecting some sort of fiscal support bill next year?
4: Well, we're not allocated that way. Currently, we have a modest overweight uh, to equities in general. You know, I think you're always waiting for uh, a good buy the dip opportunity. Our medium term outlook is constructed partly based on the anticipation of some sort of fiscal stimulus, certainly in the U.S., uh, anticipating that, you know, in Europe even, you know, there will be a point where stocks just look so attractive and you want to move in. But we'd probably say it's premature to be making that type of change right now.
3: What do you make of the fact that earnings have been coming in broadly better than expected, and yet people have just been punishing anyone who's underperformed, and even those like Microsoft that have outperformed but not crossed a high enough bar
4: yeah well I think it's you know the the refrain what have you done for me lately partly and I think the fact that you've had such a swing in sentiment uh, over the last month you know over the last week or so frankly uh, and you know inevitably earning seasons are backward backward looking uh, and we're going to say well gosh that was really great for the third quarter but it isn't telling me as much as I would like about the fourth quarter so even though the surprises are are quite good uh, that's not necessarily helping you know as you point out uh, that said if we do look at the guidance the forward guidance. It has been, you know, very, very positive. I mean, two-thirds of the companies that have given guidance so far, it's been upwards. Now, of course, there's always that qualifier that we know fewer companies are offering guidance than in the past, and it's still relatively early in the earnings season. Uh, but if there is something that people or investors want to focus on to, to justify a more positive medium term outlook, I think it is that guidance that companies are giving.
0: Daniel Morris, across all of BMP Paribas securities research, Do you see what I'm going to call an elasticity of CEOs? I mean, Boeing right now, horrific numbers. They're being elastic. John Farrell mentions they go to 130,000 jobs. Do they have a lot of room to cut costs? John loves this phrase, too, right size. Do they have a lot of room to globally right size given this pandemic?
4: I think it's going to be extremely challenging for those industries like airlines, for example, uh, where you appreciate that, you know, it's not just the short-term effect from the lockdowns, it's the longer-term ramifications of what's changed thanks to the pandemic. It's a change in mentality, people realizing they don't need to fly around the world for a couple-hour meeting anymore, or do they even need to commute into the office uh, every day the way we've done in the past. So those are, are you know, arguably permanent changes that's going to hit some industries uh, quite significantly, and there's going to be much bigger restructuring is necessary than anyone would have anticipated. So I think there's without question certain parts of of the economy uh, that are going to go through a pretty wrenching change, and inevitably it's probably never going to be fast enough. But at the same time, then we also need to be thinking about, okay, where is that demand going to go? I mean, you would still believe that aggregate demand is going to continue to rise. It's just going to be spent in different ways, and we need to really focus on where those opportunities are as well.
1: Dan, I just want to finish on the markets at a headline level and just think about the following concept. I wonder how much support is beneath this market on a day like today and the concept of the vaccine put Dan, How important is that vaccine put just this idea that people want to stay allocated to risk because they believe at some point in the next few weeks, the next few months, we could get that key announcement.
4: Well, certainly the, the, the timing is is crucial, uh, but even if it isn't in the next few weeks and it is more the months that you, that you mentioned, uh, you know, if we think a year out and, you know, if you are an equity investor, you are buying hopefully a stream of earnings that goes a bit further out than the next quarter, the next six months. Uh, absolutely, that's going to be important. I think the other thing we, we can't put aside is it is the week before the U.S. election. There's still then inevitable uncertainty about the outcome and the implications of that. So you've got kind of these two negative factors weighing on the market, increasing infections, certainly ahead of the election you know one of those will hopefully be resolved uh, by this time next week uh, though maybe not and then the second uh, as we all hope sooner rather than later
1: hey dan great to catch up as always dan morris of bmp parabola asset management thank you sir
0: it is very difficult, and again, as Lisa mentioned earlier, the spread narrowing, the difference in yield between that big negative 10-year and an ever larger negative 2-year yield really coming down and squeezing down to a flatter, flatter negative-based yield curve in Germany. Jane Foley knows this well with Bank senior foreign exchange strategist, but she understands that foreign exchange, not linked to the equity markets, who cares, but linked to the bond market, no question uh, about that. Jane Foley... It's real simple. There's something going on, in Germany is signaled by those greater negative yields. What is it?
5: Well, of course, it's a flight to quality. It's fear, Tom. And we do have uh, the CPI data for the Eurozone app before the end of the week, and that is going to highlight more deflation. Now, we did have import prices for Germany this morning, a little bit better, but it (coughs) is that CPI number later in the week. That's, uh, again, going to worry uh, investors, it's going to be quite interesting because we have that GDP data for Q3. That's going to look really quite good—a uh, nearly 10% bounce back Q1 on Q1 on, in, in Q3. But of course, the market's already going to disregard that because even though it's not been released yet, it's already old news. We all know now about the the, the new lockdowns uh, throughout the, uh, the the region, and that of course means it's going to be bad news economically for, for, for the fourth quarter. So. It doesn't look good from a European perspective right now.
0: Export import yeah. dynamics important in the United States, advanced goods trade balance. It's a secondary statistic, I'm gonna call it. It's a pretty grim negative number, not to where it was supposed to be on survey, but nevertheless another key data point there as well. Jane Foley, then when I look at this and John has mentioned the resiliency of the Euro of the Euro, how does Euro get a bid here?
5: Well, I mean, it doesn't. If you're looking at against the yen, certainly, I mean, that, that definitely is, yeah. is pushing uh, is pushing lower. And even against the the, the US dollar, one seventeen twenty two. I mean, it wasn't uh, too long ago, and we were above uh, at one eighteen. So the euro is looking at, like it's on the back foot. There is some anxiety going into the ECB meeting tomorrow. You know, could they potentially pull the trigger on policy measures tomorrow? Well. I mean, our central view is December, and I think that's probably closer to consensus. But there is some rumblings that, given the worsening in the backdrop this week, given the the fear about further lockdowns nationally in in France and and maybe more restrictions in in Germany and elsewhere, that maybe the the, the guard, the ECB president, could pull the trigger. So I think a little bit of anxiety, and that's pushing the, the euro on the back foot today. 117.23.
1: 117.23. I've been really surprised by how resilient it's been up until the last 24 hours. Given the direction of travel the continent was on, it's been pretty obvious for the last four weeks. But here's the break this morning with a broader dollar bid. Jane, we've been looking at the Italian bond market, and I think we can all agree the jury's still out as to whether this has really transformed from behaving like a credit to a sovereign. They're lower today. Italian bonds are softer. Yields are higher by five six basis points. It's not dramatic, but the move is there. And I think a lot of people are focused on it. Whether we can break that positive correlation between the single currency and the periphery, Jane. If I'd asked that question a couple of weeks ago, I think people would have had confidence and said yes. I think the move that's starting to emerge this morning, just slowly as this session grows older, might be making some people nervous, Jane. What's your take?
5: I think there are doubts really emerging. I mean, for instance, uh, we did have headlines suggesting that there were protests in, in Rome about the restrictions. But I think more than that, if we, if we look back over the, the spring and the summer about what really drove the euro higher, there was a lot of confidence about the ECB policy, certainly, but also about the recovery fund. And as we go into this, say, the the second dip of this or the second wave and the and the double dip of this, this recession. You know, we've got to ask about the recovery fund. A, is it big enough? Well, it's, it's not that big as a percentage of GDP for the whole region. But there's also concerns. There's bickering going on about the timing. Uh, when are they going to get the funds out? Can Italy, given its, its history of not being able to invest productively, uh, can it actually use the loans that it will get and turn them into, you know, productive capacity rather than just more debt? So I think there are doubts beginning to emerge. And certainly, if those restrictions really do take a toll on, on the economy throughout Europe and certainly in Italy, I think those doubts can only get
1: bigger in Q4. Well, Jane, that's the question. Where is that recovery fund? That recovery fund hasn't been ratified yet, and you've talked about the political difficulties. We've been really keen to draw a distinction between a European economy that's struggling and redenomination risk. Jane, do you think before year end... And I'm not saying that we start to think about the breakup of Europe, just that people start to conflate the two issues where the periphery starts to trade significantly weaker. It feeds back into the banks again. Can you see that scenario developing before your eyes now?
5: I can see niggling certainly arising. I mean, we're starting off from a very strong position. If you look at the euro, if you look at the amount of long positions built in the euro over the spring and the summer, really extensive. Now, uh, to, put it, to put it in perspective, if we go back to 2017, 2017 was, I think, a real Goldilocks year for the eurozone. We had really strong growth from the outset, or stronger than expected growth from the outset, and we had better political outcomes. That was the year, remember, that the market was fearful of the far right and the French president election and the Dutch election, that didn't happen. So we had better outcomes. We had a really good year for the euro, long positions building. And this year, or this spring and summer, the markets become even more optimistic about the euro. So I think that there is the perception, the, 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 the risk that we could get some sort of more reality emerging and, and people lowering those long positions in the euro.
3: At what point, Jane, will central bank policy not have that big of an effect on currency differentials? And it really all comes down to the economy. And it seems like perhaps that's what we're seeing today in bulk, given the uh, ongoing restrictions that we're hearing about in Europe.
5: Well, certainly confidence is, is a lot. Of it, Um, you know, and and certainly today we've seen confidence really take a knock by those headlines. But in terms of central bank policy, I I think what the the ECB did back in May, and really uh, pushing hard against uh, talk of fragmentation by, you know, stepping up the types of bonds that it was going to buy, by by really um, making that message very clear, it really did help uh, with the the whole confidence in the notion of of the, the euro moving forward. And of course, at the same time, was that recovery. The the whole notion that perhaps they had taken a step forward to more of a fiscal uh, comprehensiveness within the region. Now, again, I, I think that during Q4, just the background of the economy, the worsening of conditions, is going to poke some holes in that confidence. And I think that's why perhaps the euro is looking a little bit more vulnerable right now. And, of course, that is independent, of course, of the, the possibility that the dollar will see a bit more of a safe haven bid going into Q4 with the similar sorts of concerns about um, COVID-19 and the double dip recession.
3: Jane, based on positioning, the sense that you're, you're giving now that there could be dollar strengthening, how violent could that be given how many short positions have been put on on the dollar?
5: Well, I don't think it could be as violent as anything like that we saw in, in March. And, and the reason for that is just the, the huge amounts of liquidity provisions that the Fed has put in place. But I think we could see some sharp movements, certainly. Now, um, I think the movement that we've seen in, in euro today is, is reasonably sharp. And, 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 and certainly, if we're looking for an exchange, um, you know, we've seen some quite sharp movements in, in, well, certainly Turkey, but also in some of the other um, emerging market crosses as well. So I, I think we could certainly have sharp movements, but I don't think we're going to see anything like what we saw back in March.
0: You know, Jane, I look at all this, and I guess at some point here with futures negative 58 deteriorating on the session, I'm watching yen with some resiliency, even with dollar stronger. At some point, I want to be opportunistic within this calamity, this natural disaster. What's your trade right now? I don't say that lightly. What's your trade right now to create gain in this pain?
5: Well, to be honest, uh, right now, you know, I, I would probably be a seller of several of the emerging markets. I would like, you know, the dollar against uh, many of those. Um, Euro yen, I think that's a very interesting one, although we've come back you know, fairly sharply. Uh, today, uh, we're still very elevated compared with where we were in Euro earlier on in, in the year, even in the summer months. So I think we've got a movement there. And also, um, I think if fear does set in, I think we could see the Aussie uh, pushing down as, as well, although perhaps a little bit of, of um, lift there, because there is this perception that Asia and, and China are perhaps faring better in terms of recovery from uh, coronavirus than we are in, in Europe and, and in the US as well.
1: Jane, always fantastic to catch up with Jane, you, particularly you. on a morning like this morning <clears throat> in Europe. Thank you. Jane Furley there
0: of Rambler Bank. Alex Gorski, Captain Gorski of Johnson & Johnson out of West Point. Someone with a really, really interesting executive career and, of course, in the crosshairs of this pandemic uh, right now. Of course, a good conversation, peer-to-peer conversations with David Rubenstein on Bloomberg Television. And the gentleman from Carlisle Group joins us this morning. What I find fascinating here, David, besides a predictable discussion of the pandemic, is this is a guy who was at J&J in left and then he came back to Johnson & Johnson. That's an interesting move, isn't it? You don't see that often, do you?
6: Well, you certainly don't see it where they rise up to be the CEO very often. And uh, so that's unusual. Remember, he's also he started out at a relatively low level marketing job at a subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson. Did that for a while, then left, then came back and rose up to the CEO position, which he's had now for about eight years, I think it is. And has uh, done an incredible job. Their market capitalization now is is about the 10th highest in the United States of any company in the United States, about $400 billion.
0: There was a lethargy. You've seen this across all market capitalizations at Carlisle Group. There was a JJ and j lethargy and then something changed under Gorsky. What was that?
6: Well, he diversified a fair bit. Um, you know, some people would say, well, Johnson Johnson, don't they make Band-Aids or don't they make Q-tips? <laughs> but they're gigantic in so many different areas of healthcare. In fact, many people didn't realize that they were in the vaccine business, And now they're producing what may be one of the best uh, vaccines that's coming out for the uh, COVID virus.
3: David, one thing that this pandemic has thrown into cold relief is there's a conundrum for pharmaceutical companies, whether to focus on simply developing the high cost, high return cancer drugs, other types of drugs that perhaps might not have the same sort of global benefit as a vaccine. Did he address a shift in that mentality and how to compensate pharmaceutical companies going forward to focus in a different way?
6: Yes. Vaccines are not the most profitable part of the pharmaceutical business because typically you take them once a year and it's not a repeat business where you take it once a month or once a week or something like that. However, um, there are a limited number of companies that do specialize in it, but it's not the main thing that they do. Johnson & Johnson does do vaccines, but it's not their main business for sure. However, in this case, the U.S. government is subsidizing so many companies that uh, they're not gonna lose money on it. They will do okay on it. But it's really, I think the public relations benefit of coming up with a vaccine that will be so helpful to all these companies.
3: And then there's also a question of actually getting the vaccine manufactured and distributed in some sort of timely manner. What did he say about uh, supply chain issues, how to manufacture this in the most expeditious way possible?
6: Well, the U.S. government has done something that no one had ever done before. Typically a vaccine takes, I would say, somewhere around seven years to develop. Uh, The fastest have historically been four years, let's say for Ebola. This is being done in one year. Now it's being done because so many companies are getting so much money from the federal government, but also they are manufacturing the vaccine before they know whether the FDA will approve it. That has never been done before. And so once the FDA approves one of the vaccines or more than one of the vaccines, they're ready to be distributed. The issue is who's gonna get them and then whether people will take them. A lot of people are nervous about taking them because they think they're not either safe or they've been politically... uh, Uh, fine-tuned to make them available maybe before they should be. So there's going to be a while before people really take these. And most experts would say not until the third or fourth quarter of next year are you going to see people really fully vaccinated.
0: David, you told us the last time we visited that you certainly weren't taking sides in this presidential campaign and you were trying to stay removed. What do you expect to see in the next six days? Will this be a traditional dash to Tuesday or will it be something different?
6: Well, traditionally, people vote on Election Day and now we will see that maybe 70 percent of the people have already voted before Election Day. That's a big difference. Secondly, uh, elections tend to tighten toward the end. People tend to come home. And as we know, the country is relatively split evenly between Democrats and Republicans, obviously not completely evenly. But I do think that you're going to you're going to see some people come home to their base and therefore I suspect it will tighten up, which is what you normally see right before the election.
0: David Rubenstein, thank you so much for joining us today. A conversation with a gentleman from Johnson & Johnson, uh, their chairman and CEO, Alex Gorsky. Look for that tonight, 9 p.m. Peer-to-peer conversations with Mr. Rubenstein. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.